You're listening to the 405 Exchange Podcast. My name is Ken Grandpierre, and today's episode is with Mona Hadar. Mona is much more than a musician, and obviously people are much more than their occupations, but not necessarily in the way Mona is. Along with being a staunch academic, she's also an activist, someone who just finds it a second nature to sing her truth and to sing about the honest oppressions that are facing everyone right now. Her song Hijabi has been hitting so beautifully on the web and the world at large. And it was really brilliant getting to sit down and talk with her about her music, her life, her journey, and everything about where she's going right now. I mean, she's achieving a lot and she still has so much to do. And yeah, I can honestly say out of so many of the talks that we've done on this podcast, this is definitely become one of my favorites and it's a true privilege to bring it to you. This is the 405 Exchange with Mona Hadar. It's just kind of like you're bursting at the seams almost that you have to put it out. Was it like that for you? 
I had notebooks and notebooks and notebooks just full of poems that I'd written and little scribbles and every notebook I had for school was full of like poems on the in the margins and friends of mine were just be like you're so dumb like you need to go out and share this <laughs> what are you doing those are some really good friends to have yeah but I, I'm an introvert for the most part you know and and I mean for the whole part and it took me a while to really decide and the first time I went up on stage and shared anything I completely shut down, lost my words. I couldn't remember why I was even standing there. What the fuck was I doing in front of all these people? And I just shut down and I nothing came out of my mouth. So I was like, that's over. Like, I'm never doing this again. But 15 years later, I'm like performing, you know, and, and doing music. And I never really thought I'd be doing that. So that's really cool. But I mean, really honestly, I think growing up in a community um, that was a very big mix of, of the black community and the white community and the other community. And me fitting into neither the black or the white and fitting very strongly into the other. But then the black community seeing me as non-dominant, like non-dominant culture and being like, come with us, you know, in some ways, like here. Um, and I just sort of started going to poetry slams and learning the craft and I had this amazing professor in college named Tracy Curry and she was really one of the ones who was like, you know, you're clearly being called to something and your voice is important and you need to keep honing your craft and learning and continuing to challenge yourself to see what you can do um, and not getting comfortable. And I, I think I really owe it to that community of artists and poets and musicians in Flint, Michigan, who are largely from the black community, who saw me and just felt like, I don't know what they saw, but for whatever reason, they were like, yeah, you can be, you can, you can hang out with us. <laughs> I want to touch on something you just said about like how at quite a young age, someone told you that you have to challenge yourself and not allow yourself yeah. to feel comfortable. Is that something you found yourself leaning into? Because I think of back when I was quite young, and I feel like when you when I had dreams and aspirations, I always imagined, pictured myself at the end of the goal rather than actually the path within it. Mm -hmm. And that element with the challenging is essentially what gets you to a place. Did it make sense to you at that young age when you were being told that even then? Yeah, I mean, yeah, whatever. Like, not that what people say is right when they say stuff about you, but people have always said, like, oh, you're an old soul. Oh, like, you clearly have lived other lives, past lives, whatever. I don't know about all that. <laughs> but <laughs> what I do know is it makes that... makes an interesting story. Yeah, what I, what I do know is that um, I've always been surrounded by incredible people who are constantly challenging themselves and offering that as a model to me to challenge myself. And one of those models was my mother and was just never satisfied with her level of knowledge, with her level of like service to the community and like constantly going out. You know, like she's held a, a class in her home for the last 25 years, you know, just like where she just invites anybody who wants to come and study with her to come. And I just want to be like that. I just want to be thirsty and hungry for knowledge and never lose that spirit of like learning and honing your craft and challenging yourself to become better and more beautiful and you know.
Yeah, I love how you're describing that because something that I strongly believe in regards to how we are as people, like how we function at our best, is that we're essentially vessels in many ways. And one of the ways we can be vessels is that uh, it sounds so hedonistic saying it this way, but we utilize other people to make us better. Yes. Well, Jesus said a vessel can only pour out what it contains. Oh. Right? I didn't know that. <laughs> Fucking nice one, Jesus. <laughs> thank you, Jesus. Wow. Yes, thank you for that, Jesus. God, so why don't you put that on a fucking bumper sticker, Jesus? Right? That's so wicked. Yeah. You know? Um, it's just one of those things that you can only give what you already have. And that's why you cultivate beauty from inside of yourself because you can't make the world more beautiful if what's inside of you is ugly. You know, it's just like I just released a song called Suicide Doors. And the whole thing is like, you could have suicide doors on your car, but if the inside of the car is nasty, the car is nasty. Like, I don't care how dope the doors are. You know, it, it, the inward is just as or more important than the outward. And we're so focused on the outward, and I'm just not here for that. I, it's about balance. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I'm going to ask you a bit about suicide doors a bit later on. I have that down here. Uh, but one of the things I want to ask you uh, next, um, well, first, a big congratulations to you. Uh, earning your master's in Christian ethics and theology. That is huge. Like, <laughs> that is fucking wicked. Thank you. Uh, when I read that, I immediately found myself kind of curious because, I mean, for one thing, I think it's kind of, not rare, but it's not often people come across someone who studied something like that. But then it made me even think a bit further where it's not so much the subject itself and the medium, but it's also, I found myself so curious about the kind of conversations you probably had within those classrooms, within your peers talking about some of the things. I'm just curious, like, what were those exchanges like while you were studying at UTS? So, I mean, I was a major outlier, a major outsider. Um, Muslim woman, hijabi, in a cohort, in, in a school of largely Christians. And not just Christians, but Christians actively seeking leadership roles in Christian churches, so leaders within the Christian community. And um, so it was interesting, for sure, to like, I was always very cognizant of what it was for me to be an outsider in that space and what my impact was on that space. So I I mean, it's almost difficult to say this, but I did try hard not to like push too much and too hard because I do have a very um, strong belief in who Jesus was and what the actual message of the Messiah was. And so I went in already kind of with my own beliefs about what, what true Christianity is and what, um, you know, the establishment of Christianity is now. Um, and I just, I tried to be gentle with myself and with the, those around me um, because I believe Jesus was a revolutionary um, who resisted and rebelled against the empire and things like his aversion within his time frame of un unfettered capitalism and slavery and um, just all of the things that he was resisting. Um, so having those beliefs 
I think for a lot of people is challenging. Um, you know, because a lot of people just want to talk about love and unity and, well, that's wonderful if nobody's trying to kill you, you know, if nobody believes that you shouldn't exist because of your, you know, the way you pray or the color of your skin or what your bloodline is or isn't. Um, you know, so for me, I want to talk about love and unity and I think that's great, but I also want to talk about the ways in which we can get there without bypassing all that shit to get there. So, yeah, I mean, why did a Muslim woman get her master's in Christian ethics? Because I'm an American, and if we're honest about who we are as Americans, all of this shit was based on Christian theology, and all of our laws, and all of our structures, and a lot of our culture is based on Christian norms and ways of being, and um, problematic Christian beliefs and theology. I mean, slavery was legal because of Christian theology, because of bad Christian theology. You know, I mean, that's just a reality of our history. Genocide was not a big deal to people who call themselves Christians. You know, it wasn't like they were like, okay, we're going to set aside our Christianity for a moment. No, it was like, it was like, okay, it was like sanctioned by the Christian church. You know, and so... I just find that really interesting that now we're talking about Muslims a lot in this country and how we're going to ban Muslims and how, you know, how many Muslims have died at the hands of the American empire overseas. Um, Guantanamo Bay is still open, you know, um, so just stuff like that is just crazy to me. Uh, and so to understand it, I feel like I had to dive deep into what Christian ethics are and what they can be, yeah. reimagining the world. Not, like, I'm not interested in proselytizing or making people not Christian. I'm interested in making people great Christians. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, tell me this. I mean, I imagine it's a very ongoing type of um, experience, but with that said, with that last part particularly, do you feel like now that you have that degree and that you had those, some of those conversations and obviously some of those experiences, do you feel like you have more answers and clarity from studying the root of everything to where it got to us to where we are now? Or, I mean, obviously that's something that's very much an osmosis, but I just wonder how you feel about being at the end of that now. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I really walked away from is none of this shit is new. Like all of this stuff we're dealing with right now, none of it is new. Um, like a Muslim man and um, sex trade and sex trafficking and uh, like why do we need Black Lives Matter right now? Because this shit is stale and stank and like we're realizing that as a community of people who have just been shat on we need things like BDS and Black Lives Matter, and we need to rise up and say to the dominating forces that be that like we just we just opt out of your system and your structure and your stank white supremacy. Like we just opt out, and we honor ourselves. And you know, so I think it really is like escaping from the consciousness of the colonized mind 
and escaping and um, rewiring our brains to know that we don't have to think in Western ways to be smart and for our knowledge to be real and um, valuable. Like our indigenous ways of being as, you know, historically colonized people or enslaved people, that those ways of being are valuable and honorable and just as valid and important as everybody else's. I love what you said there because it's very true in regards to how no, this is new. It's very like, I mean, even though there's clarity in that, it must also feel kind of perplexing just when you consider just the amount of years that have transpired just since humans have existed to where we are now. It's a very strange thing to reconcile with, in a way. Yeah, I mean, some days I'm just really, really sad, you know? And it's, like, hard to get over the sadness of, like, why we can't figure out how to live justly and beautifully. Yeah, and righteously. <laughs> and, yeah, and with, with, like, equity and love. Um, but I'm also not naive. Like, I, I believe that conflict... Um, is good for us. I, however, don't believe that oppression is necessary for liberation. You know, like, that was one of the tricks of the Christian empire is to say that, like, oh, like, we brought you Christianity, so now you're free because you have Jesus, you know? And they're speaking to people who they literally, like, enslaved. Yeah. You know, but like now you have Jesus. Aren't you so glad that we enslaved you and gave you Jesus? You know, and so like I'm just really interested in how to navigate those conversations with hope, but not a hope that's cheap, but a hope that's like fueling the fire within us to like reclaim our our indigenous ways of being and to to rise up and to speak truth to domination and to make the world the world that we want, you know? And not to allow that sadness and that, like, I don't know, depression or whatever you want to call it to just, like, quiet us. We have to use it as a tool to, like, activate our hearts. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, I want to start asking about your music now. Mm -hmm. um, particularly your tune, Hijabi. Uh, Billboard named it one of the top protest songs of 2017 and a top 25 fan, one of the top 25 feminist anthems of all time. When you hear that, what does that make you, how does that make you feel? Like when you hear me just saying that, that that's like set in stone to some people, like what does that look? I feel like it's such a huge blessing and it's crazy. You know, for the first track I ever dropped to be named, all that stuff, it just kind of blew my mind. I also had no notice from anybody that that was, like, even a conversation that could happen. Yeah. So one day I just woke up and, like, Google Alerts told me that, like, Billboard named the song this. And then a couple months later that Billboard named the song this. It was just, like, wow, like, I really came to understand that when you do something from your heart and you don't have expectations of it. I mean, I thought a few thousand people maybe would like like the song and bump to it and enjoy it. I really honestly thought that it would take time 
to build to a place where people would be interested in listening and watching and paying attention. So it was it was so crazy to me. Like the very first song, people wanted to hear what I was saying and that it, you know, it's hard because I really think it was because I was pregnant. Like I think that was the only reason that anybody cared. Is <laughs> <laughs> because I was so pregnant. I love and, the honesty of that though. Huh? I love the honesty in that, and you saying that. Yeah, I mean, I really don't think I was saying anything or doing anything that was so radical, but I think seeing a non-standard body in a music video like that, um, I think people were just like, wow, like it's so rare. And one of our intentions in the video was, uh, I co-directed the video with Tune Laniran, who also produced the song and co-wrote it, um, centering the belly and like centering this like weird magical thing that like we don't really like if you think about how babies are made it's so bizarre and that this is just how the reality of how we all came into being it's just mind boggling and mind numbing and so I was just like how do we center that like because if you think about that for too long you really feel kind of high yeah. You kind of feel like, what is life? <laughs> like, what am I doing? What is my life? How, why am I here? And, you know, it's it really like refers you to a knowledge of mystery and a knowledge of the unseen. You know that you can put a seed in the ground and it grows. Yeah. Like what? Like how? Yeah. It's bizarre. You know, like you know, a man and a woman, a woman have sex and then. A baby grows inside of the woman's body like it's just and so we kind of wanted to say I, I, I really wanted to center that yeah. and I think people were just like freaking out that there was an enormous belly in the video. <laughs> well I had quite it's funny we're, bring, we're touching on this because I had quite a meta conversation with a friend a few uh, weeks ago about like how it's definitely like in the same vein of kind of like almost like a high type of talk to have but I was just saying like it's so trippy that like pregnancy and birthing are two of the most common things that we all know about and witness in life mm-hmm. and it happens to literally everyone and we see pregnant people on the street of course and you know it's such a common thing yet you don't read about it until you're a girlfriend or until you or the person who's pregnant and I was just like that's so strange. It is. Because apart from that, be, having that context being introduced into your life, you have literally no framework of how that works. It's so bizarre. I mean, it's ajib. <laughs> you know, like that. That is an Arabic word for strange. I mean, but not just strange, but like strange. Like strange. what? <laughs> it's ajib. It is all the way out there. It's outer space. Like, I like that. Yeah, you know, I don't know, like. I just remember being pregnant and having the feeling that like there is something inside of my body that is going to be a human being and right now it's just a bunch of cells <laughs> like it's just bizarre you know it's one of those things it's totally ajib yeah but like yeah you don't talk and, like we all came from a woman's vagina or a small cut in her stomach and women's bodies are still policed and you know we we are stripped of so many rights to like reproductive rights and people want to limit women's rights to 
what we can and can't do with our bodies and it's just like you know I think women have been doing okay <laughs> regulating and taking care of their bodies given the number the sheer number of humans on the planet that is such an inarguable fact yes like so true I think we've been doing alright you know uh, I was when I heard the tune Hijabi. I was kind of curious. Um, I was very curious to know: Were there many versions of the tune before you decided on what you eventually released, or was the creation of what we eventually what we heard is, was it quite seamless? Like, was it quite a path to get there? Or is this one of the songs that just kind of came out of you? Um, so it was one of the first songs I ever wrote, and as I mentioned, I co-wrote it with Tundelani Ran, and we got together and. I just had this idea that I want to write an anthem. I just want to write something that feels good and is funny. And so we just started throwing ideas around and it came together pretty quickly. And, you know, in the video, um, the, the twins, Iman and Khadija, who go by Al Tawam, they are such amazing dancers and choreographers. They literally created a dance for rap my hijab, you know, the like words, the, the hook of the song. Yeah. And I think really that's one of the things that made it so memorable to people. Like people all over the world send me videos of themselves doing the rap my hijab dance. So it's just so sweet and so cute, you know, like on my way here, a like 13, 14 year old girl stopped me and was like, hey, are you Mona? I, like what? yeah, like what is my life? And her parents were with her, and they were like, "Who is she? Like, how do you know this lady?" <laughs> like, and she wanted to take a picture of me, and her she posed with me, and her dad took the picture. Oh, and, like, that's literally, we're just waiting for the AC train, and <laughs> it was so sweet, you know. But like to have that experience of here's this 13 year old girl who, like, I I dress like her mother. She was uncovered. Her mother was covered like me. And she's seen me in a music video, you know, like just that level of representation is so important to me. So the song just feels like, felt like it came from a real organic place. It didn't take too much effort. It wasn't like we labored over it for a long time. Yeah. It just kind of came together. That's massive, but uh, I'm also keen to hear you talk about uh, your tune Dog, which features uh, Jackie Cruz from Orange is the New Black. Uh, love to hear the story about how this one came together. Yeah, so Jackie's so cool. Um, I I met her at this uh, fundraiser for Syria, um, for Syrian orphans and refugees. Um, and she was like, hey, like if you are ever doing a song and you need somebody on the hook, let me know. Oh, yeah. And I was like, actually. Just like that. <laughs> I have this track that you know I, I want to release soon. And she was like, let's get in the studio. So, you know, for many years I've been hearing stories in the Muslim community and in every community. Um, in re most recently, um, New York dealt with the Jiva Mufti community where uh, there were allegations of sexual abuse from the top um, leaders in the community, you know, the Hindu community, the Jewish community. Um, all sects within the Jewish community, all denominations in the Christian community, all, you know, like, portions of the Muslim community, that everybody deals with this misogynistic bullshit of men in positions of power uh, taking advantage of women and children. 
And what is the world that, like, it took until this last year that we started talking about it and, like, Me Too became a thing. So, like, the song predates all of that. But I was just basically saying, like, I'm not here for this shit anymore. Like, I'm going to talk about it and I'm going to tell these stories. And, like, not only am I going to tell the story, I'm going to laugh at you for thinking that this is still okay. Because it's not. And it's so not okay that I find you to be a complete fool for thinking that it's okay. And for thinking that you're safe and that you're not going to be found out because all of y'all are going to be dragged, you know? And so I'm just, I was just trying to put that out there that all of that shit is over. (laughs) And uh, I was really, really just like so happy so happy that the the song was received in a manner that people were like okay and a lot of people were very offended by it really very offended but i feel like the people who were offended like for me that calls upon a little bit of guilt it must like why else would you feel offended by men being predators upon women and children unless you partake in that. Yeah. Why would that be offensive? Yeah, because it's not Calling like, that out. It's not like it's um, a secret or even like a... It doesn't, infer, it doesn't infer to anything directly to point out that that's something that exists within the world. Like, we all... Uh, anyone who's sensible agrees that's what partakes in the world, unfortunately. Yeah, for sure. Have you had any, like, direct conversations or interactions with someone who found it offensive? Yeah. What was that like? You know, people are just like, oh, we already disrespect religious authority so much. And people are like, millennials have such a problem with authority as it is. Like, there's no need for you to make it bad, worse. Like, you know, like, people look up to you. You're a leader in the community. Like, you shouldn't be, you know, speaking about stuff like this in this, like, derogatory way or in, like, a disrespectful way. And I'm like, I'm not the one being disrespectful they're the ones being disrespectful. I'm just telling a story. They're the ones engaging in problematic behaviors. Why don't you go talk to them? Don't come and talk to me about telling a story that's true in a manner that allows people to hear it. No, go talk to these problematic dudes who are like literally raping people. Don't come and talk to me about a song. (laughs) Like, your priorities are, are stupid. Yeah. Priorities are completely fucked up. Yeah. yeah. Um, earlier you brought up Suicide Doors, and uh, it's one of those tunes, that, like for me anyway, it's one of those songs that reminds me so much of how music can tie to personal experience. I mean, you would like to think that every song you hear has that effect, but obviously that's not the case. But Suicide Doors is one of those songs. And um, of course, I'm truly sorry about your best friend, which the song is about. Um, I would just love it if you could talk a bit about this track and just kind of like how that all came together. Like, Yeah, so, you know, many years ago, uh, I was 23, turning 24, my best friend of her own life. Um, we had grown up together, and I won't share too many details because of the privacy of the family, and um, but... It shook my life and totally changed the trajectory of my life. 
at that point, I had been a substitute teacher at a school, and I hated my life. I hated everything about my life. I was, like, in bad relationship after bad relationship, and, like, I was on track to marry this dude who I totally hated, but, like, on paper, he was perfect, <laughs> you know? Like, my family liked him. Everybody liked him. You know, even to the point that somebody in my family was like, if you don't marry this guy, you're stupid. Like, you know, and and I just knew it wasn't right. And when my friend passed away, it just sent me into this space of like, oh, shit. Like, I didn't even know that was an option, you know. And I kind of went into this space of like mourning, but also an intense struggle within me started to occur of like, I had to ask myself, was I gonna continue on in my stupid life that I hated? Or was I gonna start living? You know, like, was I gonna, was I gonna like stop living or was I gonna start living? And I had to make a decision. And so four weeks after the fact, I packed up my stuff and I moved. At that time, I did not know I was permanently moving. But I packed up my stuff and I went to what I thought was just a short internship on a mountaintop in northern New Mexico. And I lived there for six weeks that summer. And then I had some booked bookings overseas. I, I was in Spain and Morocco and London. And, and I went for all that stuff. And I when I came back, I decided, well, I think I'm going to just live here. And I just lived in this off-grid community, mountaintop community with like water that came straight out of the mountain and like no flush toilets, um, no running water in my house. My house was made of adobe. Like I had a wood-burning stove for heat, (laughs) you know. I mean, it was just like this radical shift of going from living in Flint, Michigan, to moving to a mountaintop in northern New Mexico. Um, And all because I just couldn't keep living the way I was, because I wasn't really living. In some ways, I was dead. And I, I I I had to come alive. And in some ways, I had to turn away from what I was, I had been doing up until that point to do that and let go of a lot. So the song is that story, the story of my friend and her battle with mental illness and the community never seeing it as that and just saying like, oh, you're just fine. You just need to put your scarf back on. You just need to start praying more. You just need this. You just need that. And nobody ever really seeing her. Nobody ever really taking the time to just spend time and be like, hey, like, you're fine. We love you. We're going to get you the help you need. You know, it's going to be okay. And instead, people are just being like, this is all your own fault. You know? And so, yeah, the song is, I hope, calling people to talk about things that are difficult, but with the hope of opening up the conversation to a more loving and beautiful space so we can not lose more people to that to that tragedy and instead allow people to be who they are with with love and helping people through the times that they're going through with love instead of judgment yeah.
That really is like, and I feel like the song definitely like conveys a lot of that. One, I really want to ask you though, with everything you just said, because I mean, both personally and I guess well professionally, you can say we're talking in that kind of context. But personally, for me, when I heard what you talked about with the mountaintop just now, I mean, what was that like? Like being in that space and just like. Because there was a shift, obviously, in deciding that I need to be here right now. And I imagine it happened on a much more subconscious basis than anything else. But, like, do you feel like that experience, like, informed you, like, going forward from that? Absolutely. It changed my whole life. I mean, there was a moment where I lived in an aspen grove in, like, an A-frame house with, I mean, no kitchen, no bathroom just a wood-burning stove and a bed <laughs> like you know it was just one of those experiences that totally shifted the way I thought about the world and like what you need and what you have to have and in some ways doing that allowed me to reconnect with myself because I wasn't so busy thinking about everything else that was going on in the world and just like it was selfish but it saved my life you know like, I know it sounds silly and naive, but like reconnecting with nature was really the medicine I needed. And I think it's the medicine a lot of people need of like just realizing that you're not just like a human being, but you're part of the earth. <laughs> yeah, you're not just a cog. I mean, we're in New York City right now, and I love it most of the time. It's a place I consider home. but. I find continuously, the longer I'm here, it feels so difficult to feel connected to yourself because whether it's like your personal relationships or your professional relationships, you're, there's always like pieces of you rather than whole of you that's spread thin. Yeah. And I, when you talked about the mountaintop, the thing, and you just kind of conveyed it with the way you just said all that about how you didn't have like the kitchen and everything, like I hear that and all I think to myself is like, wow. Not only are you definitely within your own thoughts, within that experience, but you don't really have a choice. Yeah. It just simplifies everything. And you get, to, you get to know yourself, and you get to really know who you are, and what you're about, and what you're not about. And not having like a whole lot of stuff in the way, and like busying you from that. Like you're out there, in some ways, just surviving. <laughs> You know, like, and doing that, like, kind of living in a more primal way, in a more primordial way, there's just something about it. It's just kind of a crazy, trippy, like, it's just crazy. It's hard to explain. It really sounds amazing. It was dope. I lived at Llama Foundation. Everybody should go there. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like everyone should experience some variation of that, because, like, what you just said about, like, just how that element of survival and just like having, being having to face about who you are and what you're about, what you're not. Yeah. It sounds so simple, but most people will never experience what you experienced. Well, you know, I'll own it because in some ways it was a real privilege for me to be able to do that. But it also is, it also is a way in which we, we've been stripped of knowledge in how to live without all of the things that consumerism tells us we need. The capitalist culture tells us we need all of this shit to like survive and to live. 
And then you go out on a mountaintop and you're like, shit, I can eat that weed and those berries and this. And like, I actually don't need any of you motherfuckers. <laughs> or any of your technology or any of your stuff. Yeah. Well, something I want to talk to you about next, um, you, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but it's proper mind-blowing to me that um, you're also a mother. And in the sense that I think about all the stuff that you have done and all the stuff that you are doing now, and it made me think about my mom when I knew I was going to come talk to you. And I remember there was this almost innate sensibility she had of just being only a mom. And of course she had like her own life and stuff, but it was definitely to the point where having other activities and interests wasn't so much. She didn't feel like it was a possibility. And I remember growing up thinking to myself like that was more than, more than anything else. And I obviously got to know more mothers, like friends' mothers and friends of mine who have become mothers. Yeah. And seeing that there is this kind of very beautiful way of like having that devotion to your child and your family while also building your life and having your endeavors. And it just, like, it's interesting. When I was coming up to talk to you, I did have a thought to myself, like, would I ask a man the same question? A father, like someone who's a father. Oh wow, and you've done so much for being a father. Right? <laughs> well, I mean, and I think I definitely would. I love that you asked yourself that. That's so cool. Oh, thanks. Well, actually, first, I wish I could take the credit. My friend Nicole is a really good friend of mine, and I talked about everything. She asked me that, but it was in the middle of me asking kind of like myself, and then kind of like it blossoming into a self-thought, and just going like, oh. And I honestly think I would in the sense that I feel like our lives do inform what we do. And I feel like with that being such a part of your life, it only makes sense. So I am curious about just like, how do you feel like that part of your life makes you a better artist? And yeah, I mean, does it even, or does it feel like such a separate? Yeah, I think being a mom changed my brain, like actually physically changed my brain. And I don't think about things the same way that I used to. Um, so a lot of the stuff that I wrote before I became a mother is great um, and so different, so wildly different than how I write now and what I write now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think it's really cool that I get to be a woman mother of two boys, of two males in this world. And that whatever they decide in their lives, like, is great and fine with me. But that they grow up, they will grow up watching me, a woman, owning my power and my femininity in the world that doesn't honor femininity as a power. And that they get to watch me do that in my hijab, in my whole, like, Christian ethics, music, like, all this stuff I do, that they get to just hang out and see me. And, like, sometimes it's hard, you know? Like, I'll go away on a trip, and they're really sad. And, I, you know, I try to, I try to like, relate to them and I, uh, allow them to know that, yes, I love them and I, I want to be with them all the time, but that also my work is fulfilling and deeply important for me in my life and that they are deeply fulfilling and important in my life and that you know I would not be the same mother to them that I would that I am if I were not doing my work my, my older son loves the music yeah. and is constantly asking me like when are you gonna do another song mama like 
I love I love this song and can we listen to your songs and he knows all the words to all the songs even like the bad ones <laughs> and like it, it's just like I try to relate to him that you know I love my work you know that work is important and an important part of our lives as human beings and that I hope someday that he grows up and finds something for him that is fulfilling and deeply satisfying to his soul. Yeah. You know, this might sound like almost a near narcissistic question, but it really is born out of a big curiosity that I have about parenting. I mean, I feel like I'm several years removed from when that's going to happen, but okay. it's something I actually find myself thinking about a lot. I don't know why. But something I always find myself... natural. It's human. Yeah, I think so. I, I find myself thinking, like, to do something creative and pursuing it and building more than anything else. And you kind of touched on this already, but I kind of want to hear it from this perspective. Do you feel like there's an empowerment in doing that and recognizing that your child and your children are witnessing this and it almost, in a way, is relaying to them that they someday could do that? The fact that they have you as an example. I mean, I have a super supportive husband, partner, co-parent, like, we really do share all of the, all of what it is to be parents, all of what it is to be partners, like, it's a very egalitarian relationship, and I don't think I would be doing what I'm doing without him, um, and so, I think they get to witness a partnership, in the true sense of the word, where people are working together to craft a life that is hopefully beautifying the world, you know, and and they are a part of that story and that narrative. You know, like, I mean, we have those intentions. We fail a lot, all the time. Every day I fail at, like, being the kind of parent I want to be, being the kind of consumer or lack thereof that I want to be, being the kind of environmentalist that I want to be, um, being the kind of like, just like all of the ways I'm trying to hold myself up to a standard, I fail. But they get to watch me fail and pick myself right back up and try again. And I think that's the important lesson. It isn't that like, we're just like perfect people trying to do our best. It's that we're doing our best and we're constantly pushing ourselves to do better than our best. I love that. That's definitely going to stick with me. Well, I have a couple more questions for you, but you know, thanks for taking the time to chat. I'm really glad I got to talk to you today. Same. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the things I read about you when I knew I was going to be talking to you, obviously, was about the Ask a Muslim booth that you and your husband had in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to have you talk a bit about that, because that seems like it was one hell of an experience. Yeah, it was good. Um, this was when Donald Trump was like, really into the campaign process and you know people were like oh he's never gonna whatever it's never gonna happen and I just had this sense of like everybody was crazy like this dude is actually the devil and like the devil has power the devil can like make all kinds of crazy shit happen in the world um and like in Muslim theology there's we believe that there are like shayateen, shaitan is like Satan. There are shayateen amongst the people and amongst the jinn. So amongst like the spirit world and amongst the human world. Like 
demons, Satans, walking in human bodies. Like, that that's real, right? And I, I think Donald Trump is that, you know? He is an embodied demon spirit. And the way that I come to understand that, and I'll get to the Ask a Muslim stuff. No, yeah, of course. But is because his work is division. His work is dividing people. And I think the work of love and like peace and unity is uniting people, bringing people together. And so the Ask a Muslim thing was really a response to the San Bernardino and Paris attacks. When, you know, you have Muslims doing crazy shit in the world, and then ultimately there's going to be retaliation of some sort. And we, my husband and I just like took a deep breath and we're like, shit, like what are we gonna do? We have to do something, you know? We can't just wait for somebody to like stab some Muslims on a train and, you know, like murder their neighbors like happened in Chapel Hill. You know, like we can't just wait for shit like that to happen. We have to do something. And so he came up with this idea, like, neither one of us is particularly skilled at anything. Like, <laughs> let's just go talk to people. We both, like, he's super gregarious. He loves people. I like donuts. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> let's just go give people some donuts and talk to them, you know? And so we went out on the streets, and we just talked to people, invited people to talk to us, and meet a Muslim if they never met a Muslim before, even if they had to just come and hang out. And like, like this is a rough time that we're going through. It's confusing. So maybe if we just broke bread for a second and chatted, it wouldn't be as scary for either of us. Yeah. Wow, I love that you did that. And you know, it's, like, I, I mean, like, was there, I almost hesitate to use the word surprise because it's such like a typical word, but was there a sense of surprise in that experience? Like the, the, the conversations that you had with people? Because I'm always fascinated by like, he presents something like that to people. And I imagine the interactions and the actual conversations that you would have would differ a bit from what you would expect naturally. Yeah, I mean, I, going into it, I really decided that we weren't gonna do it unless we went in with a totally open heart. Like, we couldn't go into it expecting people to attack us. And we couldn't go into it feeling defensive, feeling like we had to talk about or represent Muslims in Islam. We were just going to go out there, two people, with our little, at the time he was two years old, with our two-year-old, and, like, just give away donuts and see if people wanted to chat, you know, and, like, open up dialogue. And we just hit this point where it was like, okay, if we're going to do this, we just have to go in open, right? And so we decided to, to do it, and we had to step back and really move into it with intention and, and openness. And I think because of that, people approached us with a lot of curiosity and good intentions. And, I mean, I have very pale skin. I can get away with a lot more than other people can. You know, and my husband is a white man, and he has red hair and blue eyes. I don't think a, a Muslim of color would have come up with that idea, just being honest. Yeah. No Muslim of color is going to come up with an idea where, oh, like, let's go out and put a target on ourselves. It takes privilege and, like, a sort of 
feeling of safety in the world, which I didn't, I don't have. I don't feel safe in the world. I've had people say shit to me on the subways and like, you know, a dude spat on me one. Like, you know, just like I've had crazy stuff happen to me. And I just would not walk into a room and say like, hey people, I'm Muslim. Come and say whatever you want to me. I just wouldn't do that, you know? But like he had this naivete and this privilege and decided that he could exercise his privilege in such a way that would benefit all people. And I just really respect and honor him for that, you know, that he he can see his white privilege and use it in a way that hopefully makes the world better and more beautiful for everybody. And, and in some ways subverts white supremacy, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a real learning experience. Like we, we, we walked away from it feeling very, mm, I don't even know what the word is, but just like, we just met a lot of people and learned a lot and realized that without conversation, like nothing is gonna change in the world. That it takes hard work of like working this stuff out on a mental level and on a spiritual level, like on a karmic level. We're not gonna get over white supremacy by just talking about it. Like things have to be done and rituals have to take place and sacrifices have to be made on on the part of those who benefit from the system of white supremacy, those who have benefited from uh, the injustices like slavery and native genocide in this country for hundreds of years, you know, like things have to, things have to happen. It's not just cerebral, you know. No, absolutely. It's physical, it's mental, it's spiritual, it's psychic, it's all that. Before I let you go, I mean, I hope it's not too frivolous to end on asking about your music again, but I really do want to ask one more thing about your music. Um, I'd love to hear about how it's been to write after you finish your EP, because I find it really interesting that you do have this body of work and these songs that exist together now, and naturally you've been writing since then. I mean, do you feel like your writing um, has felt different since creating a body of work of that, or does it almost just feel like an extension of just who you are going forward? I, I'm really excited about working on new music. I, I'm constantly learning and learning what I can do and what I'm comfortable doing and I'm excited to be learning this craft. Um, and I love it, honestly. I love writing and coming up with hooks and melodies and writing the verses. Like It's so much fun for me. I, like It's what I want to be doing every day, all day. Um, if I could do nothing else, I would be a, a very happy person. Um, that's really where I, I derive a lot of my fulfillment and satisfaction. So I just feel blessed that I get to do that at all, let alone like hopefully I'm on the way to having it be a true living where I can be making a happy living for my family, take care of my family by doing it. So, yeah, yeah. You know, I just connected with a producer named um, Frederick. He produces for, I mean, everybody, but most recently I think he is 
who's working on Eminem's new album, and he's Palestinian American, and it's just really cool to be working with new people and to be thinking about like what collaboration looks like with different people, you know. So like the EP is is a like a tri collaboration between myself, mostly co-written with Tunde Run, and then also working with Culture Shock record labels, um, JB and Kron Cole, who produced all the music on the EP. So I'm just excited to see what else we can do, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'm excited to hear it. Oh, oh, yeah. Thanks for telling me. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Don't ever take us for granted. All around the world, love women every shade.